On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no. She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner. Doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks. Run happy. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich and joining is my good buddy, Shana Goldman. Shana, what's going on? Uh, just excited to be here and talk about round two. Yeah. So, okay. So here's the plan. We are, we're going to cover uh, flame stars and, uh, and Rangers hurricanes. Um, well, I guess Rangers penguins and then preview Rangers hurricanes. Cause those are the series that I, I didn't get to in the last show, just because we hadn't seen the game sevens by then, but I promised people would get to them eventually. And so those series begin on Wednesday night and we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. So hopefully people will have a chance to, uh, to listen to our preview by then. So let's start with flame stars, because even though it's certainly wasn't the most, uh, aesthetically pleasing series in round one, I did think it was, it was an interesting one to, to, think about and discuss because if you're making a short list of players that enter the postseason with either the most pressure on them or the most approved people, I think Johnny Goudreau was very near the top of that list. He was coming off a, a regular season where he deserved legitimate uh, hard trophy consideration. He led the league in five on five scoring. He had 115 points, but anytime you bring it up, you get trolls coming out of the woodwork pointing out the fact that, all right, let's see what happens in the postseason when the game slows down and teams are able to, to lean on him a bit more physically because he clearly hasn't been able to get the job done in the past. And it's, you know, there's flaws with just that type of logic, obviously. And it's, I think, being a bit um, intentionally obtuse. But at the same time, it wasn't completely unjustified. Like, if you just look at his scoring numbers in past postseasons, they've clearly dried up more than they have in the regular season. And so I think everyone wanted to see him carry over that success. And in round one against the Stars, it was a choppy series, but I think we we got to see the full Johnny Goodrow experience in a good way where he really was the best player on the ice. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, like, heavy hockey is something that gets talked about all the time. And, you know, there is a conversation to be had if there are certain players who do or don't perform well in the postseason and if it has to do with that grinding style and a player like Johnny Gaudreau is all about speed and you know puck moving abilities so it was nice to see him shine and I do think it's important to mention like this was the best position he was in to succeed this is the best team he's been on you know the best line mates he's had that entire top line was super stellar so I think he ended with two goals and six assists for eight points and Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure all five of his uh five on five points were primary. So that's like a great way for him to show what he can do. Like this is a player who's one of the best in the league at generating offense and transition. He can carry the puck up the ice. I think only Jack Hughes at five on five had better zone, a uh, better zone entry rate of carry-ins. And this is someone who legitimately is one of the best passers in the league. So it really worked out well for him. That Like this is the year the flames were good because he had such a good season and he was a huge reason why the flames were so good. And yeah, like this series, I think we all expected more of Calgary and you could put a little bit of it on other players in like at the top of their lineup, like Matthew Kachuk, you know, his play wasn't as good until game seven, but Johnny Gaudreau consistently was good. And he was one of the more exciting parts of the series when there were a couple other players, maybe we hope would shine a little bit more. He still did the entire way through. So if anyone had any questions, I think he shut them up completely with that overtime winner. Well, and the beautiful part about sports is, it's it really it's easy to change the narrative, right? Like yeah. one good postseason, and all of a sudden he's going to be a playoff hero, and it's going to be in the distant rearview mirror. And he started a bit slow in game one, even though the Flames won that game. Like it was it was kind of a lethargic effort from pretty much everyone. Like they scored early, and then that was basically it. But from that point forward, he was indisputably the best skater on the ice for either team. Uh, goalies obviously notwithstanding, and we're going to get into right. Jake Ottinger here later. But here's some stats for you: with him on the ice at five on five. The Flames outshot the Stars 76 to 47. He had 50 shot attempts, 25 shots on goal, and 12 high danger chances, all of which uh, were the best in the series for any skater. He had, I tweeted out this graphic, he had 35 five on five shot assists in the series. 
That was nearly twice as much as anyone else. Matthew Kachuk was, was second with 19 and three times as much as anyone on the stars. Um, and so, you know, he finished with the eight points, the two goals, he scored the, the series winner with a beautiful shot in, in, in the game seven overtime. But honestly, I feel like just looking at those stats, even though eight points in seven games is good by any measure, it doesn't really do justice to how much his fingerprints were all over this series offensively, because, you know, if not for a, a superhuman effort by Jake Ottinger, which is one of the best goalie performances we've ever seen from start to finish in a seven game series like this. I feel like he easily could have doubled that point total. And, and we'd just be talking about like him right up there with Connor McDavid in terms of the best round one performances. But, you know, it, it was a bit, um, it, it was a bit tempered just because of how great Ottinger was, but the chances he was creating on a regular basis were, were, were phenomenal. And it's everything you want to see from Johnny Goodrow. Yeah, it absolutely was. And that's like, I think what you mentioned too, like his points only tell you so much about his postseason story. I think the same is true for the regular season because we could look at him and be like, wow, look at where he ranked in points. But then you go a little further and you go, what percentage was primary? What percentage of his points, you know, how many times did he have a point on a goal that was scored by the Flames? Or how many goals was he on the ice for? And things like that at five on five and how many primary points he had. Like at the end of the regular season, uh, I looked into who the best passer was. And he was the player, you know, all situation, you see him like rate pretty highly and you see the McDavid's up there and the Jonathan Huberto's. And when you really go into five on five, it was so clear how high above the rest he was, you know, with his ability to pass from behind the net. You know, I think, I don't think we talk about that enough, like how much that can hurt a goalie when someone can get a pass off quickly from behind the net. And it does help that he played with good shooters. Matthew Kachuk is an all around force. And Elias Lindholm Elias Lindholm's just standing in one spot at yeah. all times waiting for it. Yeah. With like the perfect finishing ability. It's exactly yep. what Goudreau could have needed. You know, it, it, it takes two to score a goal. If, if you're talking about the passer, but he put his line mates in such a good position to succeed. So you could look at his entire season and go, wow, this is a player who the points only scratch the surface and the same holds true here. And he really was the difference maker. So it's like, once again, here he is the MVP of the flames. Well, here's what I'm curious about spinning it forward to kind of think about how this is going to look in round two against the Oilers. You know, you, you mentioned, I thought you did a, a really fun piece kind of previewing for sports the using the sport logic data round to kind of like keys to the series or whatever. And, and you had a note in there, which, which you said on this podcast already, where Goudreau was like a top five player, basically in the league at both carrying the puck into the zone and getting dangerous chances off of the rush when he did so. And in this round two matchup, I'm very curious to see how the Oilers try to slow him down in that regard. I don't, I'm not sure there's necessarily a right answer. Um, you know, since they made their coaching change, we talk a lot about how Woodcroft took over from Tippett. One of the other big changes was his assistant coach, Dave Manson took over for Jim Playfair and he he's kind of responsible for the handling of their defensive assignments. And since that coaching change, they basically leaned on Cody CC and Darnell nurse to the type of, extreme defensive deployment that, you know, we'd seen in the past with like how the Sharks would lean on Mark Edward Vlasic in his prime or like how the Bruins used to just like use the Dino Chara against other teams' best players whenever they possibly could. And those guys played really well in those roles. Now, just from watching round one against the Kings, I thought, you know, Darnell Nurse came into the postseason with a bit of an injury. His mobility didn't necessarily look up to his usual standards, I thought, in terms of the way he was moving. And, and he was giving up more carries than I'm, than I'm expecting from him. And so I assume the Oilers are going to stick true to form and just basically use CC and nurse whenever they can against this flames top line to try to at least keep them relatively in check. And I'm just not sure how that, how well they're going to be able to contain them. And and that's going to make a big difference here because, you know, Jake, as well as Mike Smith played in round one, I don't think it's fair to expect him to keep saving 94% of the shots and replicating what Jake Ottinger did himself against the flames. And so if the, the opposing goalie stops making saves with this frequency and Goudreau keeps making these types of chances happen. There's going to be a lot of goals in the future for the flames. Yeah, this is, this series has a lot of potential because I think it's going to be a lot more wide open for each side than it was in round one, because Dallas can slow things down. And we know LA can slow things down, even though yes, it's a very young blue line. Like it's, it's what makes both of these teams click. So now you're going to have it. It's not like the Flames are a bad defensive team by any stretch, but they can play that up-tempo pace, and we know the Oilers can. And they definitely made some smart adjustments, and you can see things like Connor McDavid going down low and the center getting into it. Like That's something that they weren't doing before. So there's improvements across the board for the Oilers in all three zones, and that's great and wonderful. But like at the end of the day, this is still the same Oilers team, and they never adjust their goaltending. And no, I don't expect Mike Smith to be that good. I do expect him to make mistakes. And, and the Flames have a lot of players that can really make him pay for it. So what makes it 
for, I think an interesting battle is how the flames split up top competition. You know, Elias Lindholm does go against top competition and so does uh, Mikhail Backlund. So you have two very good options here. If you go Backlund, you're going defense first. And if he's playing with someone like Blake Coleman, we know that's one of the best four checkers in the league. He shoots the puck a ton and he knows how to play in these situations. You know, if the pressure rises, that's someone you can trust anywhere on the ice against anybody. So that makes for an interesting option to try to shut down McDavid. But on the other hand, they could go Elias Lindholm's line. And if they do, you really do have the potential for speed versus speed. And maybe some people don't want to see a track meet, but I think that there is something interesting to it if we get to see Goudreau and McDavid head-to-head because these are two players who can take over games. And if you have any doubts about that at all, watch McDavid in game seven of that round one series. But it's super interesting when you think about that because if you're the Oilers, how do you strategize for it? Is it better to say the Flames have their best stacked on one line, so we should as well? And Leon Dreisaitl, we know, is not 100%. And him at 50%, he's still creating offense better than a ton of other players, but he's not moving very well. Or do you split them back up and hope that Backlund can take one line, Lindholm can take the other line, and you can try to beat them another way, like just by you know, the power versus power matchup on one hand and try to have your best forward break through against very good defensive line the other way. So they have options here that make it kind of intriguing, but I'm betting that this is going to be an exciting series either way. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's going to be quite a bit of goals. When you said, uh, I know there's people who don't want to see a track meet. Are those like exclusively NHL <laughs> head coaches? Cause I feel like pretty much everyone else does. I mean, I guess maybe yeah. there's hockey like, purists out there, quote unquote, that they want to see a, a two, one grinded out physical game. But yeah, I want to see these teams flying around and creating off the rush. Like that's that's when they're at their best. I guess, you know, the flames are going to have home ice in, in this series. So they more times than not, will be able to dictate those matchups. So we'll see how they choose to go about it. Certainly if Chris Tanev's going to be out, I'm not sure what, you know, what his status is in terms of, he, he didn't play game seven. It, it seemed like they it was- said everyone's an option though, that morning. And then he didn't play at night, but like, what do you really hear from coaches? Like you could look at any matchup and they'll be like, Oh, um, this player is day to day. And it turns out they have how many broken bones and punctured this. So, you know, there's only so much to take from that. So that's, that's a big one. It's, Ooh, it's, also, sorry. Yeah. Who expected Michael stone to be in the playoffs and doing well while Mark stone's at home? Like what universe are we in? Well, M Stone, M Stone's killing M. Stone. it. That's exactly what I expected. Yeah, yeah, he's. He, I, I love it because he has such a one-track mind. Like when he's out there, he's just going to try to hammer the puck as hard as he can every single time. And usually, it like hits the backboards. Like it's not even anywhere near the target, but he's going to go for it uh, yeah. unabashedly. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, we'll see on Tanev. It's the NHL playoffs. So if I found out that he had like a limb amputated and he was in the lineup <laughs> that same night, I'd be like, yep. Yeah, that, and blocking that shots checks out. Yes. That's so, him. He's going to play. Yeah. So I think there's going to be, you know, it's going to be a lot on the plate of Rasmus Anderson and, and Noah Hannafin in this series in that regard. You know, part of the complicating factor is as we saw in game six and seven of that Oilers King series is like, if you're the flames, you can devise this game plan to be like, all right, we prefer these matchups, but Woodcroft did such a good job of basically cycling McDavid, like with everyone, like he played 21 and 24, five on five minutes in those two games respectively. And so if he's going to be there out there, every other shift, like you're going to create these um, opportunities for him to, even if, you know, you're trying to match up Lynn home or you're trying to match up back against them. If McDavid's just constantly out there, there's going to be shifts where he's out against other units that he can potentially exploit a little bit more. So there's certainly a lot of interplay there. I I think from the Oilers perspective, defensively, I'd strongly consider using Brett Kulak as much as I possibly could in this series, because he's clearly their best rush defender and he looked fantastic in round one. I shudder to think what Duncan Keith is going to look like (laughs) in this series against either Gaudreau or even Mangiapani, because these guys have so much speed off the rush and they were able to get away with it against the Kings because the Kings just didn't have the shooting talent. Like they were creating all of these rush opportunities and they were flying in with speed, but then they basically get in the offensive zone and just kind of throw this muffin on Duncan on, on Mike Smith and he'd be able to stop it. And that's not going to happen in this series. So if you have a defenseman out there, it's just like letting guys waltz into the zone. I think it's going to be a real problem for the Oilers. Yeah. The Kings are a team that like at five on five, I think had the lowest like goals to expect uh, expectations. Like they just could not finish all year. This was a problem and it definitely hurt them to lose a player like Victor Arvidsson or, you know, and it changed up the lines a bit, but at the end of the day, this is a season wide problem. And then on the power play, I think that they were second in like goals below expected too. So 
they had a lot of problems with finishing and now you're going up Mike Smith against a team that definitely does not have those problems unless there's like an otherworldly goalie on the other side, as we just saw. And Mike Smith is not that. And like, I'm, I'm one of the bigger doubters of Mike Smith. And it's because like, he can go on these hot streaks. And then yeah. if anybody is going to ruin his game, it's not like, Oh, he doesn't have support. It's him. It's his mistakes that are going to cost everybody. So like, he can't be taking the same risks that he was before the Kings couldn't finish. So you had that advantage, but um, no, I agree with Kulak. You need to have skaters who can skate. Like it's yeah. very simple in today's game. You have to have defensemen. You can skate. You have to have mobile defensemen. You can still go for like a big body defender, but they have to be able to skate. Duncan Keith skating is not that great at this point in his career. And he's not the most defensively sound. I know he knows what it takes to win and whatever other crap you want to throw at it. But like, he is what he is at this point. And they've tried to maximize him, but you know, it, it just, it's a very imbalanced when you go through like their defense and that's going to be interesting if they continue to go 11 forwards and seven D like they did in game seven with Robert coming up. So that does work. And that does give you more opportunities to throw McDavid in every single combination because you don't have four perfect lines that you're going to be rolling, yep. but it's, a, but that the one like drawback I have with that is, is dry sidle. He did play a lot in game seven, but are you going to run the gauntlet in game one and two, if he's still nursing something, or do you kind of pull his minutes back a little bit? Like, then are you basically going 10 forwards? Plus McDavid is playing as legitimately as two this time. Like not even, he's just being himself. He's just himself plus half of dry sidle. Yeah. So that's what he is. He's 1.5 McDavid's. Well, and you know what? It's a dry sidle's credit. He's clearly hurt. And I thought he looked like he was giving one hell of an effort in game seven. Um, You know, there was that one play where he was like hounding someone with the puck in the defensive zone. And he was just basically sticking to them, like all the all the way across the ice and and just giving all the effort you could possibly ask for. And I think they're trying to compensate for those physical limitations by just taking him away from the center position because he was struggling so much at the start of the series. And they adjusted by just being like, all right, he's going to play on McDavid's wing and we're going to try to insulate him this way. And, And it helped a lot. So it's not ideal for them because you'd like to see him out there, you know, having net positive minutes of his own to lighten the load on McDavid, but it'll be something to watch for sure. I I think, you know, when you brought up the flames earlier in terms of like their playing style and how they can get into a track meet with the Oilers here, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think over the course of that round one series against the stars, I was seeing a lot of conversation about like, Oh, what do you expect? This is Daryl Sutter hockey. It's like two very boring teams. And I completely disagree with that. Like, I think you got to have to give the stars credit for having a game plan and sticking to it and basically trying to willfully drag the flames into the mud with them and kind of grind out these games. But I think the flames can play a pretty fun brand of hockey if they're lined up with the right opponent, right? Like if they're playing a team that is willing to open it up and actually try to create events and carry the puck and do stuff, like the flames eyes light up, especially in the neutral zone. You, you see them, they swarm the puck, they quickly get it back. And then they go back the other way off the rush. They're not just trying to grind out dump and chase and basically hold onto the puck for 40 seconds and then, you know, change and basically do it all over again. Like they're trying to actually do stuff. And I think they're going to, they're going to get that dance partner in this series with, with the Oilers because uh, you know, the Oilers certainly aren't going to approach it the way the stars did. And, and so I think that's going to lead to a much more aesthetically pleasing, pleasing product here. Yeah, like as much as we look at the Flames and go, oh, it's Daryl Sutter hockey. Um, they they can they can beat you know their opponents both ways. They can generate off the rush and they can cycle it too. Um, the biggest thing for them is going to be making sure that they have scoring below that top line and they have the skill to do it. Like if you, I think uh, the last two games we saw it, it was Manjapani with Backlund and Coleman, and that that line clicked. And then you had Dubé playing with Yarncroft and Toffoli. That line, I think, has potential, but it does give me a little bit of concern because I think Tyler Toffoli needs a better passer with him to play at his best, which I don't think we've really seen so far in his time in Calgary. But still, like if they can get some production from their middle six, I think that they're in really good shape to challenge the Oilers both ways. They need to slow it down. We know they can do it, but they can play the speed game too. So I think it makes for an interesting matchup. And as much as we're talking about them playing the speed game, it's not like the Oilers have some dazzling bottom six forwards either. You know, so... I think this is going to be more of that up-tempo style than maybe some of the, I guess some of the other series now, like I'm looking at them and I'm trying to think like quickly, like, you know, who matches what, but more than round one, I should say, at least it's going to be more up-tempo. This isn't just a defensive team going up against a, a speed team that we just saw happen. This is two teams who can push the pace of play going up against each other. And it should be fun. Like you think of, I know the regular season, you could throw it out the window when you get to the playoffs, but we've seen battle of Alberta games in this day and age, not five years ago, the teams that are 
you know, going out right now and we've seen them have these high scoring games and really exciting ones and chaotic. And that's what I think we're all rooting for here. Like we want to see the most chaotic matchups possible and hopefully they allow it. Well, and you know, like this Flames team, I was thinking, I think part of what the stars gave them trouble with beyond Ottinger, obviously was, I think they benefit from playing a team that's like a bit dysfunctional in terms of like, you know, if they're trying these crazy passes or trying to carry it, all of a sudden it gives them the opportunity to attack defensively and turn that into offense. And for better or for worse, that stars team, like they were so programmed to play a certain way and every player they had was so committed to doing so. There was this one moment in game two that like legitimately, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but this, I think it was Joel Hanley, who's like a depth defenseman for the stars, but he had the puck at center ice and the play had kind of broken down and it was essentially like a three on two for the stars because the flames had gotten caught deep in, in the offensive zone. And instead of exploring something with it or trying to carry the puck into the zone and make a play, he like literally just dumped it in deep and everyone on the stars went off for a change instead of exploring this three on two. And it was like, yeah, this is, this is exactly it. And so they just got the puck deep and then the flames basically had to do it all over again. And, and that's not the way they necessarily want to play. And so I think they're going to get many more opportunities to to tap into that brand of theirs against the Oilers. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know what else there is to say about the stars. Like I've been so critical of their approach and and their tactics on this podcast. Clearly, you know, they got to within one goal of round two here. Like they made it to game seven overtime. It took an insane goalie performance, but they were a massive underdog in this series and they squeezed out pretty much everything they could out of it. So I don't know. It's, it's weird to say it's a massive disappointment because this does seem like kind of like a good result for them. But at the same time, when you look at the personnel they had and then the way they chose to play, like, how can you not feel disappointed? Yeah, no, it's just a style of the stars. And like, you could look at Rick, uh, Rick bonus team and like, he was the assistant coach in Tampa Bay for a while too. And the lightning were a lot more boring and they were actually a lot worse defensively while he was behind the bench at the end there, because he did play it that more conservative one dimensional approach. And you could see once he left. And I think, I want to say uh, Todd Richards took over for a bit on defense too. Like they, they played more of that speed game that this team was built to play because they had the forwards ready to play that. They just need their defense to back it up a little bit. So it doesn't entirely surprise me that that's the style of play that they're playing in Dallas. And I'm curious to see where they go from here because they have the makings of something really good. They've one of the best top lines in the league. They have an elite number one defenseman, Amir Heistanen, who, you know, I think in game seven, two in particular, he absolutely shined. And I think, yeah. yeah, if he didn't, miss parts of the end of the year, he would have been higher in the Norris conversation because he really was before that. And, and then you have the play of Jake Ottinger. So you have like the fundamentals that you want. You have strong top line. You have a very good number one defenseman. You have some good depth defenders behind him. And then you have a very good goalie to like build on, but you need more than just having good players. Like, yes, a lot of their players are past their prime. You could see Tyler Sagan was going through it before he broke his foot. Jamie Ben's play is not at that level. Radulov, who we know could be so exciting. I mean, that was a terrible season for him. So they have the makings if they can bring in a little bit more pop to their lineup. You know, I like the addition of Vlad Nemeskov. That's a great facilitator, but they need more offensive pop. You also need to have the systems to back it up. And I don't think they're ever going to get that if, like under Rick Bonus. I don't see him changing too much to to suddenly, you know, to revamp everything at this point in his career. Well, it's all the environment, right? Like you could see, yeah. you could see um, what Miro Heiskanen could be in that series, right? Like defensively, it's obviously all there already. Like as a one-on-one defender, he's as good as it gets. He does so many little things where he just kind of like tactically diffuses a potentially scary situation because he like, he's able to kind of chip the puck away from a guy and then all of a sudden retrieve it or get it to his defense partner. And all of a sudden they're out of the zone and and it, it all looks so easy, but when you watch other defensemen try to do it, you realize (laughs) that he's, he's pretty damn good at it. Um, But then in this series, you saw the offensive flashes. I think it was, um, you know, it was game six at home. And then it was game seven. certainly as that game went along where he almost single-handedly tried to will them to victory offensively. Like he had five or six in game seven controlled exits where he basically just took the puck deep in his zone and carried it all the way coast to coast and got it into the opposing zone. And it, it was bittersweet in a way because it was so fun to watch, but it was also a reminder of kind of how much more he could be offensively in a better environment. And he's still only turning 23 years old this summer. So it's like, he's got a long future ahead of him and the sky's the limit, but he's also 
in or entering his physical prime here. And you'd like to see them capitalize on that and put him in a position to succeed so that he is legitimately recognized as being one of the best defensemen up there with, you know, with McCarr and with Yossi and Fox, because he is that good. He just, he isn't put in a position where he can put up the points to, to garner that type of recognition at this point. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. And there's a couple of players you can say that too. Like you could say he should be a Norris caliber defenseman on both ends of the ice, who is that standout top of the class every single year. And hopefully the next couple of years, we do get to see that when he's in his prime. Um, and Rupe Hintz is someone who was really close to the Selkie race. I don't think he got enough credit for his defensive efforts this year. And the, one of the problems was he didn't always go up against top competition because they saved that for their third line. And that was a line that, you know, they didn't allow much back, but they created absolutely nothing. So you have to decide, do you want that dimension or not? You know, when you try to play defense and in this league, you need to have some dimension to it. If your fourth line doesn't have as much offensive, you know, capabilities at one thing, but you have to be able to handle the puck a little bit. So, and then you have a player like Jason Robertson, and that's going to be an interesting one this summer when they try to figure out what he should make and what his next contract is going to look like, but he's someone who could be at the top of the scoring charts too. So they have a couple really good pieces if they can figure out how to supplement that and how to find the right stylistic blend for these players. And obviously you can't just build a team or like, a coach isn't going to bring in a totally different style based on the players. Like he's like, this is my style. This is what we're going to do and try to like tweak it from there, not completely redo it. But when you have the talent and they have those high end, you know, talents, they should be looking a little bit more. How do we build around you? How do we maximize you? Because everything else can follow. If we have, you know, the cornerstones of the team, we just need to build around that. And I think that has to be their attitude moving forward. Yeah. Well, and okay, let's move on from the series. One, like we should give Jake Ottinger his love. We've kind of mentioned yes. it in passing here. He, for the series, he faced 41 shots per game. He stopped 95.4% of them. He stopped 69 of 74 high danger shots he faced, which is pretty nice. He gave up 13 fewer goals against than expected, depending on the model you use. He, so he checked both the quantity and the quality boxes. He did pretty much everything he could possibly do to keep the stars alive and, and give them a shot to hang around. Now I will say like we were just talking about how the stars might not have put some of their players in a position to succeed. I think they did their defensive plan was well executed in this because the flames are kind of such like a North South team beyond Johnny Goudreau. Like they just try to get the pocket, just go North and try to get to the net and just shoot it as much as they can. And the stars did a good job of like, they were kind of gumming up the middle of the ice as the way they have in the past, they filled lanes and they were basically just leaving the rest of the stuff for Ottinger to gobble up. So he made some ridiculous acrobatic saves and certainly stole a few from the flames that they should have scored against pretty much any other goalie. But they did a good job of giving him a lot of shots that he could see and a lot of shots that were, you know, very manageable for him. So he played phenomenally. The stars had a good defensive game plan. It all tied together into this like formula where they gave the flames a lot of trouble and took them to overtime of game seven. Yeah. I know most teams don't want to look at it like, well, we did our job and we're out in round one, but they, they really did. And Jake Ottinger deserves a ton of credit. Um, he obviously didn't start the year as a starter, but when he came up and was rotating with Holpe, he was really good. And you could see that turnaround in like February when the stars actually had a chance to compete a little bit more. Um, and he was a key part of it. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of his also, you know, he helped my fantasy season. So <laughs> I, I like him a little bit extra, but no, he was fantastic. And the way he plays, it, it was how he controlled his rebounds impressed me. And even when there were second or third chances, how he continued to stop them. And then at the end of it, the way he just would flip the puck out of his glove at the end, it's like, you know, this is a young goalie and to have that little little bit of flair and that oh you, you know, love the like swag it, yeah yeah it's like he came out and it was like all right uh whoever like if you weren't a fan of his before you should have watched that and been like whoever he is i want to see where he goes from here so i'm excited that he got that moment because he deserved it after you know i guess there was some doubt the last couple of years with dallas and their goaltending situation they had so many goalies but now it's very clear like it's ottinger's crease and he earned it in every single way all right um we did like 20 plus minutes on the stars and flames, which is remarkable on our end. <laughs> I think we did a pretty good job of covering our bases there. Let's um, we're going to take a quick break here. And then on the other side, we're going to do the Eastern conference component of this conversation. Champions aren't born. They're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme Shopify, the all in one commerce platform to start run and grow your business. Forget the off-season work. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. 
Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Recognize employees with Custom Inc. Show customer appreciation with Custom Inc. Outfit your teams with Custom Inc. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at customink.com. Make Custom Inc. your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. Okay, let's do let's do Hurricanes Bruins here as we uh, transition to the East. So I think the big takeaway from the series for me is sometimes I think the value of home ice in, in these conversations can be a bit overrated. Like if the talent gap between the two teams is wide enough, there's only so much that the inspiration of fans cheering for you at home or, or having a lot last change as a coach can really do to, to paper over all those weaknesses. Like I think talent will generally win out, but in a series like this, that not only featured two pretty evenly matched teams, but ones that had like very specialized uh, center personnel, it made such a big difference. I think for the series, home teams won all seven games. And they did so by a 32 to 12 margin. And I think the biggest difference was clearly like that last change, which allowed coaches to dictate the terms of which the games were played at and get a jump on the matchups. So in the four games played in Cal in Carolina, the hurricanes had Jordan Stahl out there for 35 and a half Patrice Bergeron's 46 minutes at five on five. And in the three games played in Boston, uh, Rod Brindamore was only able to get Stahl out there for six minutes and 40 seconds of Patrice Bergeron's 31 and a half, five on five minutes. And that's just such a massive swing to me. And now, even in those games where Stahl was playing, it's Bergeron. Bergeron and Marchand are such elite players that they were still able to, to get theirs and win those minutes in totality. But I think not nearly to the degree that they probably otherwise would have if they were playing against leaner competition. And I think from Carolina's perspective, when they were game planning for the series, I think they clearly thought, listen, if we can just limit those guys ever so slightly, we're not really scared of this Bruins depth scoring. And I don't think they can compensate for whatever they lose from their top line. And that held true. Like in this series, the Bruins didn't get a single five on five goal from a forward outside of their top six, which is really hard to do, but it's been a problem for them for years and it popped up again in this series. And I do believe that was kind of the difference at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree with you because you have like the Bruins two options really are, you can stack that top line with the perfection line, which we know how good it is, but then you take away a scoring option on your second line as you know, good as their second line is with, without Pasternak, it's not nearly the caliber it could be. And then you have the other option of splitting them up, which they did at times too. So like, it, it was really tough for Boston to figure out like the right way to handle it. And for this, you would think Aho would have had better results against top competition when he got them, when it wasn't still going out there because in the regular season, they do split that and it usually works for them. But here it, it just did not, you know, oh, uh, a different animal. Oh yeah. And it's funny. Like, you know, everyone's talking about like, if he were to be done this year too, like, Talk about going out on top. I know he didn't finish with the championship ring, but like this was one of his best seasons yet. And he's out here killing it in his mid thirties while, you know, we're sitting here calling 29 year olds too old to sign contracts, but no, like it really did show the difference of like the elite talent and you can handle that matchup game. And, you know, Bruce Cassidy does feel like he's more of a matchup coach and Brad Brindewar never, everyone looks at and they go, Oh, he's the player's coach, but they forget like, his whole thing too is just that they're greater than the sum of their parts. It's all about systems. It's all about their forecheck. It's all about their style of play and when they can control things, which they did at home. And obviously Jordan Stahl made a big difference. You're not going to get as much offense, but like you said, if you're not getting anything from your bottom six, that's going to bite you, especially if your opponent is look at Max Domi, who yes, moved up to the second line in his most productive game yet, but would anybody have predicted he would have been the player to be the difference maker in game seven? I sure as hell wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, in those games in Boston, which all, the Bruins won all three, 
part of it was getting Bergeron away from Stahl. And then part of it was getting him onto Sebastian Ajo and, and kind of blanketing them instead. And so it was, it was, it was a win-win in that regard. Stahl was immense in this series. Like he surprised me because I, I, I don't think he's, you know, especially on a consistent basis, the player that he was even a couple of years ago, but man, that he, he did everything they possibly could have asked for in this series. He led their centers in five on five ice time. He led their skaters in Corey Schneider's micro stack game score. He didn't, you know, he's not going to give you that much scoring. He still had four five on five primary points in the series. And then he handled that Bergeron assignment on top of that. So I'm really curious, you know, as we think about round two and Carolina hurricanes versus New York Rangers, I would presume that we're going to, you know, the series is going to start in Carolina. I presume the game plan will similarly to be, all right, let's get Jordan Stahl out there as much as we can against Mika Zibanejad. Uh, and then they're going to kind of pair Stahl with, with Pesci and Shea as they seem to like to do against Zibanejad and then probably go try to get Slavin out there versus Panarin. Like, do you think that makes kind of the most sense from a, from a matchup perspective? Yeah, that one's going to be really tough because if you're looking at it based on the regular season, I would have guessed that Stahl would have been paired against Panarin because Panarin is a player that even if he's not playing at hundred percent can change a game in literally seconds. He's one of the best players in the league. And now he actually has a scoring threat on his right instead of the likes of Dryden Hung or Barkley Goudreau, you know, they have Andrew Kopp there. So now you have Strom, Panarin and Kopp. That's a lot to handle. So you would think that line would have gotten stalled, but based on the way round one went, and I'm saying that like Panarin's line is the end all be all. Like it's not because you have uh, Zibanejad and Kreider right there and you could easily match either one up. So you have those options, which is great for Carolina and the Rangers don't have as much of an answer for that right now. Um, but I think the way that the Zibanejad line played and the way Perrin looks right now, maybe the better option is pairing up stall to try to shut down the Zibanejad line and then have um, Aho go against Panarin. But it's really interesting too, because like in round one, it's Mika Zibanejad getting the toughest matchups, which is what he did through most of the regular season. And you have Kreider, Zibanejad, and now it's Frank Petrano doing it, who is not a defensive presence by any stretch of the word. Like he is offense only, which is fine, but it's the reason why he's not a bonfide top six player in most lineups. So they were going against the Crosby line. And I thought numerous times that the adjustment could have been made to change him to give Mika Zibanejad a little bit more support. And I think it was before game six or after, or maybe even before game five, like Zibanejad was saying, like, they focused way too much on playing defense instead of trying to play offense against Crosby's line. And I get why it was a lot to handle for them, but an adjustment would have been giving him more defensive support, whether it was Tyler Mott when he returned or Andrew Cobb. And those adjustments didn't come until the end of game six, where it was Mott moving up there and the Rangers happened to score. It was just to protect the lead and ideally get to overtime if they couldn't manage something offensively. And then in game seven to get something going, it was Andrew Cobb going there. So they have these options to give Zibanejad the defensive support if he needs it. So if a, if Stahl's line is shutting them down, they could make those tweaks, but then you deal with the other line being down that defensive force. Like if you take cop away from Panera and now you need to adjust Panarin's line and maybe then the answer is giving him Tyler Mott so you get into this like adjustment mode for the Rangers depending on how Carolina matches up against them but the problem is the Rangers aren't good at mid-game adjustments they're not good at adjustments game to games you know month to month you could look at the combinations they put out and generally it's like these are the combinations they're going to sit for weeks if not months and we're not touching them even if they're getting flamed every game so it should push them a little bit more because now Carolina has the options they don't yeah no, well, certainly. And, you know, it, this is going to sound like a very like new, well, yeah, no duh statement, but this Rangers team looks so different when Mika Zibanejad is scoring goals, like in terms of their, just their outlook oh, yeah, and, and, and the vibe, like, like, like they need him, they need him scoring. And, and, yeah. and I understand like, he's your best center and you, you're, you're going to try to match up against the other team's best center and play it that way, strength on strength. And I understand that, but they need to find a way to creatively manufacture opportunities at five on five. Like it'll come on the power play, but at five on five, they need to get him some looks so that he can convert and score and use his shot, which is such a weapon for him. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like in this series. It's going to be difficult to find those minutes, but you're right. Like they're going to, they're going to need to do something to, to provide him with a little bit of support because I imagine like stall going up against him makes a lot of sense because you've got Zabinajad, but you've also got Kreider and that's a lot of size on that line. And I think they're going to prefer to have stall out there for that matchup and then use, use Slavin's kind of reach and like ability to just be annoying with his stick work and his gap control to try and give Panarin less room to work with. Like if I was game planning, that's kind of what I would go with personally, yep. but um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see like, you know, part of the beautiful sort of chaotic madness of this Canes team and the way they play is we talk about teams that roll four lines 
Like this team really does like, doesn't take shifts off. Like there's clearly, you know, there's a talent gap between those lines, but they all are going to try to play fast, play with aggression, push the pace, and they're not going to give you any breaks. And for this Rangers team, it'll be very curious to see how they kind of cope with that and how they deal with that, because they're not going to have, there's not going to be any minutes where you can kind of be like, all right, we're going to send our fourth line out here and just kind of hope to survive for five to seven minutes a game. Like, like the Carolina hurricanes will take advantage of that. And so how they hang on in those is going to be really interesting to me as well. Yeah. Because like, like you said, the hurricanes can play four lines and it's not, and you, there is a gap in talent, but it's not like you're going to sit there sweating it out because the fourth line's on the ice. For the Rangers, they claim not to play the matchup game, which is a total crock of shit. They do play the matchup game. And in round one, it was the Vantage against Sidney Crosby, and it was Jacob Truba and Keandre Miller against Sidney Crosby until when Lingram was out of the lineup. And when Lingram was back, it was a different story because you couldn't go Braun Fox against, I don't know, one of the greatest lines in the league. Yeah. They're going to sit here and they can say that they don't play the matchup game here, but they do. They put their fourth line out in situations too. Like, we, you know, you're watching this, this round one series against them and look how many offensive zone starts the fourth line got. And the fourth line really does not have much offensive upside. And re- well, Tyler Mott brings it now, but before he was back in the lineup, they had literally none. It was Barkley Goudreau, who's the best two way force on that line. Ryan Reeves, you know, Dredd Hunt played at times. You're not getting this incredible fourth line that's going to possess the puck and do some danger. And of course they had a couple of looks and there were a couple of shifts. They actually did well, but a lot of the time you see that's the line that gets folded back. And then the next line starting in the neutral zone or the, the defensive end, instead of those offensive zone starts, you're hoping your fourth line can get you just by grinding it out. So the Rangers have the size in theory to grind it out, but are they going to actually be able to against the hurricanes? Like those are legitimate questions. And then they have their third line, which is talented in the kid line with uh, Lafreniere, Hedl, and Kako. And, you know, there's talent there, but they get the fewest opportunities of the bunch. And I get the lack of experience, but when they get those minutes, it's good to see what they can do in them because they gave them spark when they needed it. Um, they were the best line in terms of controlling like the shot share. Every single line was pretty terrible in the quality chance share. If you look at expected goal rates for every single line combination, it was bad. Every single player was below the 50% mark unexpected goals through this series the best I think I think was advantage ad was just above in shots thanks to his play like later in the series but they had a lot of problems with that so it would be nice to see the Kako line get those offensive zone starts when they can and whoever they match up against you know if you don't play the matchup game just throw them out there if you trust all four lines but they just need to be a little bit more strategic about it because like you said there is some structure that you can have within the chaos that's hockey and it's not even necessarily you know, trying to shut it down or anything like that. It's just managing the players and where they're best fit. And I get wanting to have confidence in players and, and say whatever you want. So you can make it seem like every single player in your heart is equal and every single one plays an important role. And that's all great and wonderful. But like, this is the national hockey league. This is the postseason, and you were not very good in round one. And now you have to figure out a way to do it. So you do have to maximize within your lineup and play the matchup game and figure out how to best use the assets you have, because as a whole up front, it's not as good as Carolina. Well, I mean, you look at Carolina right now, I, I assume they will stick with Max Domi on the second line with, with Trocek and Tarabainen just because of the game seven performance he had. So at least out of the gate, I assume that arrangement will, will take place again. Yeah. If that's happening, you've got Marty Natchez and Jesperi Kakaniemi on the fourth line, basically. And, you know, for Natchez, I... <laughs> I think this is going to be a big series for him because if he's going to get some of those minutes against New York's fourth line, like theoretically there's going to be such a massive talent and, and speed advantage there. And if he can, you know, turn some of those opportunities into chances and goals, that would go a huge, a long way towards tilting the scale here for the hurricanes, because, you know, the Rangers just quite frankly, don't have a player of that talent level that's playing in that role. And you could argue like he probably shouldn't be on the fourth line, but at the same time, this hurricane team does have so much depth and, and they, they like to spread out the lineup. So he is there for now. And when he's, when he's cooking, I understand he's a flawed player still at times and he makes mistakes, but he's so talented. And when he's, when he's, at his most confident level, like he's flying through the neutral zone, he's weaving in and out of traffic, he's making stuff happen for others. And so if we see that type of player, that's going to be a huge advantage for the Hurricanes in the series. Yeah, if you can compare his skating alone to Ryan Reeves, I mean, talk about a difference. I think Natchez is a really good player. And the Rangers with Tyler Mott on their fourth line have a good speedy presence. I know like I could yep. bring him up, but he was a really good ad for them because their fourth line, it 
it, they, they went for physical play. They went for tough to play against. And that's everything this team wants to embrace. But at the end of the day, you still need players who are tough to play against at the top of your lineup. And you have to figure out how truly to define it in this day and age. Is tough to play against that you're going to get, you know, crushed along the boards? Sure, that works and is great and wonderful. And in heavy hockey with the playoffs, but if you're losing the puck battles and you don't have the foot speed to catch up, you just put your team at a disadvantage. Being tough to play against can be those aggressive forecheckers that are hard to get the puck away. And that is literally the, the Hurricanes identity right there. Yep. So you have four lines you can play that style versus the Rangers who don't have as many lines who can play that style. Like Andrew Kopp can play that way. And Mika Zvanajad and Chris Kreider, sure, they can do it. But Frank Vitrano is not. Um, and that fourth line just doesn't have the skill. If Barkley Goudreau does return, it helps. And it's funny because if the Rangers lost in round one, I was curious how many people would pin it on the loss of like the likes of Ryan Lindgren and Barkley Goudreau. And I can get behind the argument of Lindgren a bit because if it's not Lindgren, it means you have Braun and Nemeth in your lineup and you have something wrong there. Nemeth was not great defensively and he took a lot of penalties for someone who should be a penalty killer. Well, and he was, he was on the zone exits. He was catastrophic in round one, Yeah, which no, isn't a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, everything in his New York tenure has gone wrong. So I get that. But with Goudreau, it's like understanding what his true value is. And for a lot of the season, it's been in a role that he shouldn't have been in, which was in the top six. Yes, he's a good defensive presence, but there's a difference between being a defensive presence and being a complimentary player who can bring defensive stability. And I think, you know, you look at Faust on Carolina, that's the definition of what you need in that top six and it's a, it's what the Rangers had and let walk and that might burn them here too so if they get Barkley Goudreau back though they have a player who can play center wing that's a good versatility to have and someone that can really stabilize that bottom six so it's not just relying on a player like you know Tyler Mott to be the savior for Kevin Rooney and Ryan Reeves it's maybe you could put together a fourth line that's Ryan uh, I'm sorry Kevin Rooney and um Barkley, Joe and Tyler Mott. And that's the fourth line that you need to go against Carolina. It's not as, you know, it doesn't have as much upside, but you have players who can actually handle the puck and can actually skate and be hard to play against. And then you can mix and match your lines a little bit more because the Rangers problem right now is with the way the fourth line was constructed or even the 11 forward 7D that they deployed one game where Patrick Nemeth, I think, played 16 seconds as the 7D that game. It was his best game of the series. Truly it was. And that's, it's sad to say, but it was, um, you know, you only have so many options. If, if your top line isn't playing, isn't hard enough to play against, you're not going to put Ryan Reeves there. And the Rangers have tried that at times, you know, like for quick stints and I understand it, but it, it's just going everything that the Rangers want to be in so many ways, the hurricanes are in, you know, so we'll see how it goes because the Canes can play the dump and chase style and battle along the boards. And the Rangers have some players who could do that, but it's not up and down their lineup. It's not the same. Well, okay, so I'm going to give you I've, – I've given this a lot of thought. I'm going to give you three matchups, and I want your take on them for okay. this series that I think are going to play key roles. Number one, the Rangers breakout versus the Hurricanes forecheck. As you mentioned, the Hurricanes are probably the best forechecking team in the league. They are relentless. They're aggressive. Part of the reason why they take so many penalties is because they literally just – you know they don't concede anything. Like They're going to go in there as hard as they can and try to create turnovers – and it works well for them. Like it's a massive net positive. Now this Rangers team, when they were humming during the regular season and when they're at their best, they're going for these long stretch passes to get, try to get out in transition and get easy odd man rushes. And that was such a big part of their rush offense. Now the Penguins in that round one series did a really good job for the most part of adjusting to the way they had played against them in the regular season, where they clearly watched tape and noticed how they were getting burned. And so they moved up more aggressively in the, in the neutral zone and kind of sat on that stretch pass. And when that wasn't there for the Rangers defensemen, for the most part, they were just content to try to just like kind of hard rim it off the boards basically and get it into the neutral zone and give away possession, but at least try to get it out. And I, you know, I'm on the record, not really liking that strategy. <laughs> um, they're going to lean on Fox a lot, obviously, like the way he played in game six in particular against Pittsburgh was what they need from him in every single game in this, in this series where he was just so aggressively slicing and dicing them with his passing and basically making everything happen for others. And beyond that, I, I think they're, they are going to struggle against this Kings forecheck. Pretty much everyone does, but I'm very curious to see kind of how they try to handle it or whether they drop guys back a little bit more to try to provide them some support because if they're just constantly flying the zone and trying for these long passes, it could be a long series where they just basically keep being stuck in their own zone. Yeah, that's the biggest problem. Like, this is a team that, 
you could say they go to east to west often and you know Gallant would probably instruct them to dumb it down and just make the simple plays that's what we've heard throughout the season uh and you know I think he has faith in the players like say Artemi Panarin you can still play to your strengths I don't know you know how much that's holding now because I don't know how healthy he is. He did miss the last two games of the regular season and left the third to last game with injury. And he hasn't been 100%. We know that he can change a game, you know, even if he's not 100%, he showed that in game seven. But at the end of the day, he was not at his best. So if he's not clicking, you know, and he can't play that style, if anybody's going to make those passes click, it's going to be players like Fox and there's going to be players like Panarin. And if he's not doing it, that's a really big problem for the Rangers to have, even though maybe someone like Andrew Kopp can, you know, battle up against the boards and try to gain possession and then get it back to Panarin so he can just do his thing. Um, but no, the Rangers are going to have to figure out a good way to adjust. And I think the two defensemen to watch, like you said, it's, it's Adam Fox. Adam Fox is one of the smartest players the Rangers have. He's one of the smartest defensemen in the league because he sees the ice really well and he can figure out the plays to make. He might not be the fastest skater. He's not the biggest. He's not the most physical, but he can make the smart stick plays and he can, you know, close the gaps and move up the lineup. He's so, I'm sorry, move up the ice. He's so smart in the offensive zone and how he can weave around his tribute to his teammates and see things that nobody else does and anticipate better than most. You can't have one player with four other skaters on the ice being the only one to do something. I think uh, an interesting player for me to to watch is going to be Kendra Miller for how he handles that, because this is a player who can make a clean pass out of the zone, but he can also skate it up the ice. And I think it's going to be really important that he tries to skate up the ice because if they go for the passes and they can't make them click, like you said, that's going to be a problem for them. Miller went up against Crosby a lot. And I think it was a little bit too much for that pair between Miller and Truba, the way Crosby's line was playing In the second half of the season, Miller was one of their best players without a doubt. And when he has the confidence, you see him step up into the offense and he has such a good, you know, such a good stride. Uh, He's worked on his feet and tight a little bit more. And he definitely has those off the offensive upside. He just has to tap into it. So if you can see him skating up the ice to start the breakouts instead of relying on passing as much, that'll help them as well. But yeah, the problem with the Rangers is they we're a bottom five team in rush based chances this year. As much as we look at the highlights and see that's how they scored goals yep. in actual shots off the rush, they weren't as good because it, it just, it just, they didn't have the cleanest way to break out. And they also couldn't sustain pressure in the offensive zone. So then their cycle chances were down yep. in round one. They were very low on their rush based offense, but their, you know, their cycle chances were high, but they allowed so much again. So they have to figure out a way to play it safe against, you know, Carolina, who can definitely burn them, intercept their passes, turn play around and go right for Shesterkin. And if he's not at his top level, which he was at the beginning of the series and at the very end of the series too, they're going to be in trouble. So it, it's such a tough matchup in every way. And you can see Brenda Moore is very good at adjusting, whether it's tweaking a tactic or tweaking a line to make everything click. And the Rangers aren't, they've been so stuck in their ways the entire season. And you, when you think of Gallant, a lot of people think of the golden Knights and rightfully so, because it's like the recency thing, but this is not the golden Knights. This is not the team that's flying up the ice and excelling in transition and knows how to, you know, stand up in the neutral zone as well. It's not so much. I mean, it's personnel too, but a lot of it, I think is they just didn't latch onto the systems, maybe the way that everyone hoped that they would have. Well, they are flying when they can get there, but you're right. The problem is the, the the initial source of how they could get on the rush, right? That's why the volume of opportunities was so low because yeah. they, they struggled to get there to begin with. Like when once they can actually get there, if they can find a way, if they can bridge that gap between being in their zone and getting out there, they're going to look good. But you kind of you stepped on my uh, on my second key matchup here, which is the cycle okay. game. So in round one, the Penguins just ate the Rangers alive off the cycle, obviously, particularly with the Crosby line. But when you were watching that series, there were like, there were so many moments where there was just a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, just rebound after rebound in front of Igor Shesterkin. And eventually when you're just having to defend that for extended stretches for that long in your own zone, you're going to have holes poked in your coverage, right? And you're, you're going to have guys scrambling out of position and you're going to have Jacob Truba just inexplicably pulling Erasmus to the line and, and leaving a man in front of the net to go try to hit someone. And then the puck goes to that guy and they score easily in front of Shesterkin. And you're going to have all of these plays which are very problematic in their own zone. And the reason why that's a massive issue in this series is because that's exactly what the Hurricanes want to do. Like they are a fast team that plays with a lot of pace, but so much of their offense comes off of that sustained offensive zone pressure where they're going to, they're going to take their, 
a heavy dose of point shots, but then they're so good at retrieving it and getting those second, third, fourth efforts. And if the Rangers aren't able to, to stop that and get it out before that continues, they're going to have a long series. And I think this Hurricanes team could really bludgeon them at 5-on-5 because it just seems like based on what we saw from the Rangers defensively in round one and based on what we've seen from the Hurricanes as a, as a statistical profile all year, like it's a, that's a big problem. Yeah, the Hurricanes are one of the best teams at keeping the puck in the zone, you know, and keeping those offensive plays alive. They're so active with their sticks. They're so smart with that at closing lanes so you can't break out and they just keep play alive and hem you in your own end. The Penguins does to the Rangers every single line, every single line on the Rangers you saw get pinned in their own zone. Every single defense pair you saw this happen with, even, you know, when it was Fox and Lingren, uh, the Zibanejad line got pinned in their own zone so much against the Crosby line. So that's something they're going to have to work on. It's figuring out ways to break out and not just chip it out quickly and fold back into their own zone before they can even get a change off. Like that's what was happening too. So even if they did break out, it wasn't working. They need to figure out how to break out with possession and legitimately figure out ways to take time off the clock. And there are players who know how to do that. Like Kreider can get the puck, skate it down the ice with a lot of speed and by a lot of time for his teammates. And Tyler Mott can do the same thing. He's super disruptive, but we're talking about a couple disruptive players in New York versus an entire team of legitimate disruptors. That is what the Hurricanes are. Jacob Slavin, Brett Pesci are so smart with their sticks. Brady Shea, the range, uh, the Hurricanes found a way to maximize him that the Rangers never did. And then you have all the forwards who can play that game. So if you look at any number about keep-ins and retrievals and you know battling for loose pucks or stick checks to regain possession. Carolina has a ton of players who rank very, very, very high. The Rangers only have a couple. And I know a lot of their way of being tough to play against is, you know, maybe they can go for the hit, but the hit's only effective if you come away with the puck instead of you just put yourself out of position. So players like Jacob Truba are going to have to work on that because he can be effective. We've seen him have some really highs, you know, high highs in Winnipeg. And he's had a couple in New York too, especially this season. And I think a lot of it does have to do with Miller. Um, but, and Miller figuring out how to use his size to his advantage as well and his long reach. So those are things that they're going to have to do against this team more than ever. And it's so easy to say and go, well, you have the skill to do it. Now you need to execute it. But you know, that legitimately is the case here. It's, you do need to know how to execute it. And if you keep getting beat, you need to figure out a way to tweak your tactics. So you don't, and they didn't against Pittsburgh a lot of the time. And now they're going to go against a team that that is their identity is just battling out and keeping play in, you know, in the offensive zone and the Rangers are going to have to figure out a way to get out of that. And, you know, maybe Shesterkin can work on his rebound control a bit. Sure. You know, everybody can use a little bit of room for improvement, even their best player. But then the problem is if he holds on to the puck, there's going to be a D zone draw. Yeah. We, I know we take face-offs with a grain of salt, you know, they're not as important as we make it out to be, but the Rangers lose a lot of important face-offs. And the problem is they don't stop their opponents from quickly generating a scoring chance off of it. Yep. So if you can lose the face-off and react, that's one thing, but the Rangers can't. So it's so glaring when they lose the face-offs and it does emphasize the importance of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. Um, okay. Last one. And then we're going to get out of here. Okay. This is a, this is more of a positive one for the Rangers. Cause I feel like we've been pointing <laughs> out stuff they do poorly and why it's going to be a problem. So the Hurricanes have the league's best penalty kill, right? And they certainly get a lot of practice doing so. They spent the most time as well in the league on the penalty kill because of that aggressive play of theirs. And part of their formula for why they're so good is because their uh, aggressive approach and sort of how they pressure the puck doesn't stop just because they have one fewer player out there. Like they're going to keep going no matter what. Now, the Rangers power play, which was fantastic all regular season, has some options here for how they can potentially break through that and give them a little bit of trouble. I think first, first off, you know, they have players that can creatively get the puck into the offensive zone and actually get set up in the first place. Like the hurricanes typically just don't even allow you to do that to begin with, which is why they suppress so much. Whereas the Rangers have, whether it's Artemi Panarin and his zone entries, or even Adam Fox and how crafty he is, or if you're just using purely uh, Chris Kreider with a kind of a speed approach, like they have different ways to actually enter the zone on the power play and get set up. And when they're there, I think they're going to give the Hurricanes penalty kill uh, or they're going to put them in a position to make some tough choices because we saw in, in the series against the Penguins, okay, if you decide to just leave Chris Kreider in front of the net alone and take your chances that the puck won't get there because you're going to cover the four other guys, 
we know what he can do. He led the league in power play goals. He's a menace there with tips and redirections and hands in tight, and he can beat you in a number of ways. But then if you do fully assign someone to him and basically go, okay, we're going to play at a disadvantage across the ice. Otherwise then yeah, sure. You're tying up his stick, but then we saw how that creates opportunities in the slot for either Zubinajad or Panarin to kind of step in and shoot more with more space and more breathing room. And so I'm going to be really fascinated to watch that because I think everyone agrees that the Hurricanes are going to dominate this series at 5-1-5, especially in terms of shots and chances. Whether they score more is going to depend on goaltending and luck and all that. But on the power play, the Rangers are going to need to compensate for some of that with scoring and continue their success from the regular season. And I'm going to be really fascinated to see whether they're able to get even an inch against this Hurricanes penalty kill. And if so, whether they can creatively find ways to actually get a few goals there. Yeah, if you look at the special teams like uh, battle, the Rangers definitely have a pretty good penalty kill and the Hurricanes power play has had some you know struggles. So maybe they have the advantage there. But then you go against one of the Rangers better strengths, which is generating offense off the power play, which really helps out when they can't do it at five on five and going against this power kill. So it's really going to be interesting to see because you could see the Penguins, especially late in the regular season, kind of figured it out because the Rangers played them in, you know, a, a tight stretch of a couple games where they would cheat towards the Zibanejad because if you have Panarin in the right, you know that he's in a passing position more than a shooting position um, versus him playing in the left circle where he could pass or shoot with Zibanejad in the slot. So they figured that out. And then in round one, you had Louis Domingue's right catching going against Mika Zibanejad's right-handed trap from the left circle, and it didn't work out. So they started tweaking it. It did take them a while to make that tweak, but then they could put um, Strom back on the right, Panarin on the left, and Zibanejad down the middle. So that works for them because that's that's a strategy that they use. These are the same five players who played on the power play for the last two years consistently. And that was a strategy they used for over a year. It was only this year that they switched back because Zibanejad wasn't scoring as much and neither was Panarin from that spot. So you could put Panarin on the right and Zibanejad on the left and then put Strom, you know, at the slot. So you have multiple scoring threats from it, but the Rangers are going to need Panarin to shoot the puck a little bit more consistently. And if there is an injury there that's stopping that, which is always possible, I don't want to like speculate on what his injury is. If there truly is an injury, but that does seem like it could be a problem is figuring out how if he doesn't shoot the puck who can so in round one we did we did see adam fox shooting the puck from the point a little bit more and that helps because you have chris Kreider. even if he doesn't touch it you know he's in front of the net or strom and Kreider can try to create some traffic so they have options there and like you said they can get into the zone creatively between you know Kreider's speed panarin's elusive play Foxes smart yeah. yeah exactly and then or zibanejad so they really do have four players who can enter the zone but it's going to be about keeping information and not being too stagnant in it and as long as they keep moving which at times against pittsburgh they did and at times they didn't they figured out how to adjust though and change up how they were positioned midway through so they have these two strategies that they're going to go between but it's players like panarin that are going to need to rove around the offensive zone a little bit more and Kreider going behind the net at times because that's worked for them too and if not it's ryan strom who can go back there and figure out what's best for um zibanejad or with Panarin in their positioning who's the better shooter at this time who are they going to be cheating towards if everybody expects Zibanejad to be the shooter how do you adjust and you know how can he find the space because he's one of the more dangerous players he should have more power play goals on the season and Chris Kreider's been tipping and deflecting them in front so that's a whole nother weapon that you know if you're just talking Panarin Fox and Zibanejad like you can't forget about Kreider in front like you said so the Rangers should have that advantage on the power play but they really can't as much as they know the Hurricanes have a propensity to take penalties They can't rely on that because one, we know that the current hurricanes have one of the best penalty kills. And two, if the calls aren't made, they still need to figure out how to score at five on five. So it's going to be an interesting matchup. It's the penguins had a good penalty kill too. And the Rangers figured it out. So if they can figure it out against Carolina, that's going to be a really big edge for them. After they lose the five on five battle, most likely they're going to need special teams, but they can't completely bank on it. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a fun series. I think all of these round two matchups are going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to watching them. It's going to be nice that the schedule is going to going to get compressed a little bit so there's just two games on every day and we can really deep dive them and enjoy them fully. Uh, Shana, this was a blast. I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, time really flew by. We, we probably <laughs> shouldn't have spent... 30 minutes on stars flames, but you know what? I don't, I don't have any regrets because it was, it was fun and hopefully people enjoyed it. So plug some stuff. What, uh, I know you're working on a lot these days. So <laughs> let, so let everyone know uh, where they can check out your work, kind of what you've done recently and, uh, and all that good stuff. 
So you can find my work at The Athletic and at Sportsnet. I just did something on key factors for round two, and I'll have another story there later this week on something from round two. We'll see it as it goes. I'm keeping it very loose there. And at The Athletic, you can read the season series previews that I did with Dom Lushishan. And I have a couple stories coming up about how the round two team stack up to contenders and some something on like the deadline acquisitions, because, you know, a lot of them are very impactful. You could look at Nick Paul and uh, also listen to the Too Many Men podcast because we're doing that a lot more consistently, too. Awesome. Well, this is a blast. We're going to certainly have you back on sometime here down the road. And uh, until then, try to, uh, you know, try to enjoy yourself. Try to... uh, (laughs) Right. I know you're working like crazy. You have one of the best motors in the game. So uh, it's a blast following all your work. It was a blast chatting with you here today. And we're, uh, we'll certainly catch up sometime down the road. Thanks for having me. Cheers. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.